Hey guys, I know it's late, but the way my week is going, if I don't do this now, I'm probably not going to get this done. And uh, so I wanted to talk about um, the ram and the goat. We're continue continuing our Daniel study in Daniel chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 1 through 2. Uh, just so you know, um, there's like an interchange that occurs in the prophecy of Daniel where some was fulfilled uh, later, uh, some is yet to be fulfilled. But what you see is that what occurred in the past is a preview of what will occur in the future. I like what Patrick Henry said, that I have no other uh, teacher or uh, instructor as far as what the future is going to look like except for the past. And wise people will study the past and they will study things that have occurred, whether they're for the benefit of mankind or they're for, not for the benefit of mankind. There's really nothing new under the sun. And so we can kind of figure out where nations are headed and where um, events are headed if we study the past. And that is uh, most true when it comes to the Antichrist and the future kingdom of which Daniel got to see glimpses of. Well, here in uh, Daniel 8, 1 through 2, and by the way, this is going to be a challenging um, teaching tonight. I'm going to shake up maybe some of your doctrine, but please just uh, hear me out and then study it yourself. So in Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, it says, During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one that had already appeared. Uh, to me, and in this vision, I, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Uli River. Okay, so Susa was the capital and the winter palace, a royal city uh, during the Persian Empire founded by Cyrus. It's in southwest Iran, about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf and due east of Babylon. Uh, Nehemiah was a cupbearer at the palace at um, Susa during the reign of uh, Artaxerxes and Esther, and he was introduced uh, to the court here, and most of the story of Nehemiah takes place there. Now, the context for Daniel is that Susa was a location of his vision, so he's not actually there. Um, and then he is three years into the reign of Belshazzar. So Medo-Persia is not even taken over the world, and but he is at the Winter Palace in Susa, or he's in Susa, which becomes a very key and dominant uh, location of authority for uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. So it's very interesting. They've not shown up on the, the scene yet, but he is in that place where they will have a, um, a throne, a palace to rule from. And, uh, and then, and this is like 12 years before they even come to the, the world power scene. And we have Daniel who is praying into the 70 year prophecy that he happened to come across that after 70 years of captivity, Israel would be taken or would be delivered in a nation uh, would be formed again from the exiles that would return home. So Daniel's praying into this prophecy from Jeremiah, and God is showing him things to come in the near future pertaining to that, because we know that they were given the decree to rebuild their walls and their temple and to return to their land during the Medo-Persian and dominantly Persian empire. 
but also he is seeing things far into the future as well. And, and I, I'm thinking that both prophetically, but also just hearing of current events and following current events, he probably knew that Persia was going to be the next uh, empire, the next world power. Okay, uh, so he's standing next to this river and it flows um, past the north section of Susa and was originally an artificial irrigation canal. And then it's here that he sees a ram with two long horns. So we'll look at that in verse three. So as I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other. Uh, yeah, grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of its way to the west, to the north, to the south, and no one could stand between him or help his victims. He did as he pleased and became very great. Uh, now, I want to stop here because we'll we'll get into the goat, but the ram here is a, a, a representation of the Medo-Persian Empire because the Medes and the Persians, there was like a joint situation going on there, but the Medes were an older kingdom. So where it says, um, let's see. The two horns, one of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later. So you have the Medo-Persian Empire that is the shorter horn that had been around a lot longer than the Persian Empire, but the Persian Empire became more powerful and dominant, even though it came later. And that's exactly what happened. The, Med, the Mede uh, Empire was absorbed into the Persian Empire to where it was just one. Okay, so this is important to understand, but also I want you to see that we have a pattern of horns representing nations, okay? So you have to keep that in mind because Daniel is a preview of Revelation. And if you study and understand Daniel, you'll understand Revelation a lot easier. So horns represent kings and kingdoms, just depending on the context. And remember, God views kings and kingdoms as the same. So it can get a little bit confusing. Okay. So we've got the Medo-Persian Empire. It's a new um, uh, superpower that's going to come up on the scene. But now we get to a goat. So in verse 5, it says, While I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. This goat, uh, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed toward the uh, two-horned ram that had seen standing beside the river, rushing at him in a rage. The goat charged furiously at the ram and struck him, breaking off both his horns. Now the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked him down and trampled him, and no one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. Now we know from previous um, visions that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted, as well as Daniel's own encounters, that this is the uh, Alexander the Great is the horn. And the goat running so swiftly means that this empire is going to show up and take over so fast that it's going to be shocking and no one's going to be able to stop this empire. So we, we know that that's exactly what Alexander the Great did. He was a Macedonian over the Greek empire. He um, indeed took over the, uh, the Persian empire. He broke its power. He trampled it. And he became the next uh, superpower by the age of 30. Uh, now, what I find interesting 
is the motive that Alexander the Great had, and that was a great rage. So the word rage, it's two words. One means power and strength, and the other word is wrath and heat. It's a great fury. So Alexander the Great was operating out of the power of a great fury, which is often what superpower rulers are operating from. There's some type of rebellion or there's some type of rage. So if you look at um, Hitler, uh, you look at Antiochus Epiphanes, which we're going to look at in a second, uh, Alexander the Great, obviously, there's this rage on the inside of them and this need to be the one ruler with the most power. And that's exactly what happened uh, with Alexander the Great. So there's a desire for conquest and there's a rage either toward everyone in general or toward a specific people group. Okay. All right. Uh, so let's look at verse eight. The goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn, and this is very important to pay attention to, whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east and toward the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens where, now listen to the language, it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained. I want you to remember that word as well from responding to this rebellion. So the daily sacrifice was halted and truth was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything it did. Oh, this is so key. And this right here is the answer to what is restraining that Paul referred to in 2 Thessalonians. Okay, and it's probably not what you think. And this is where it's going to get a little bit challenging for you. So at the height of his power, the very long, strong horn was broken off and four horns came in his place. Alexander the Great died suddenly actually in Babylon. So they were on their military conquest to take over all of the known world. Um, they don't know what he died of. Some say that he was murdered. Some say that he got really sick. But he died at the age of 30, and at his, he didn't have any children for his kingdom to go to. So his kingdom was divided by his four generals, and I'm going to give you their names. Uh, the Ptolemic Kingdom of Egypt, actually not the names, I'm going to give you the names of the, the empires that showed up afterwards. Um, now this, this is interesting because the Ptolemic Empire is where we got Cleopatra and uh, Mark Antony, um, so it's very interesting, you know, to learn those things in school. And then we see that Daniel prophesied about them before they even happen. You have the Seleucid Empire, which is key to Israel in the uh, east. Then there was the kingdom of Pergamon in Asia Minor and then Macedon. Um, the, it's from the Seleucid Empire that a small horn that Daniel refers to came up. And that ruler's name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, so this is not referring to the Antichrist, the final Antichrist. However, it is referring to a, an Antichrist that did something that Jesus referred to that will happen again. So he's a preview. He's a type. He's a shadow 
of what's going to happen again at the end of the age. Now, Daniel describes his small horn um, because it, it connects his physical activity as a ruler as well as the spiritual warfare that was going on behind the scenes. And I like that because it shows us how the Jewish people viewed what Antiochus Epiphanes did because it's going to happen again at the end of the age. So Antiochus is the one that committed the abomination of desolation that Jesus was referring to when he said, when you see the abomination of desolation occur. So Antiochus, what he did is he um, set up a, an altar to Zeus in the uh, Jewish temple, the second temple, um, and the one that Zerubbabel and all of them worked on. He set up a Zeus, he slaughtered a pig in there, making it unclean, and he put an end to all the sacrifices. And so the this sparked the Maccabean War, and it also became the demise of Antiochus Epiphanes. Around this time, the Roman Empire was coming up as a superpower and began to engage Antiochus Epiphanes uh, in some battle. But when Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, the Jews would have immediately remembered Antiochus Epiphanes. That, that's where their mind would have gone. So it tells us that more than likely there will be a third temple built. Um, I don't believe it's just the church as a temple and, and the Antichrist showing up as if he's God. I really do believe there will probably, probably be a third temple built and then at some point the final Antichrist ruler will enter that temple and declare himself as God and he'll put an end to the daily sacrifice which is exactly what Daniel talks about later and it's within um, a three and a half year period so there will be a treaty with Israel and then halfway into a seven year period um, he'll break that treaty he'll commit the abomination of desolation and that actually is part of the precursor to the Great Tribulation, which, by the way, is not the wrath of God. Um, the Great Tribulation is redemptive in nature, but it's also um, the Antichrist making war against the people of God. Okay, so um, they would have immediately thought, again, of Antiochus Epiphanes. So the Lord lets us know and he gives us insight that there will be another ruler who will do the same thing. And in fact, he tells us, that this future ruler will subdue three nations that's part of a ten nation coalition, the ten toes made of iron and clay, the ten horns that are referred to in Revelation chapter 13. But what I find interesting is the restraining aspect. Okay, we have to understand when you go into the language where it says this horn's power reached the heavenlies and attacked the heavenly army, it threw down some of the heavenly beings, some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army um, and destroyed the temple, etc., etc. But the army of heaven was restrained from responding to this ruler's rebellion. The Jew equated what Antiochus Epiphanes did by fighting the people of God, desolating the temple, as an outright act of war against God and his heavenly host's army. Okay? So there was a spiritual thing. And you look at in Daniel where Gabriel explains to him, I've been fighting the prince of Persia. I had to get help from Michael. And we're getting ready to take on the prince of Greece. What are they doing? 
they are restraining these principalities from going beyond um, what they're allowed to go beyond. In other words, you cannot wipe out a nation completely of Israel. You can't do this. You can't do that. But there are also specific things that are happening in the course of time that God is going to let them do because it serves his purpose. So it's kind of like you've got Satan who attacks the Lord. He gets, you know, the stripes, he gets the bruising, all of those things. Well, that was for the purpose of salvation. And it was actually a hook in the nose of the enemy for his uh, eventual destruction. And so this is what's happening here. There were specific things that needed to occur that would be worked into the greater prophetic purpose of God. And so the, the spiritual army is restrained from stopping this little horn. Okay. Now, uh, I'm going to read to you 2 Thessalonians 2 instead of turning there because we're going to come back. But listen to this. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know this is referring to his second coming because he's already come the first time. And listen to this. Some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus and how we will be gathered to meet him. So the language already here is that we will meet him in the air when he returns. Um, this is a second coming because that word coming there is parousia in the Greek, which only refers to the second coming of the Lord. And it only refers to a king who returns and stays. So he's saying that our being gathered to meet him is occurring at his second coming. And I'll prove that again in a second. So he says in verse two, don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the door, day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them, even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision or revelation or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say for that day. So what day is he referring to? He's referring to the second coming of the Lord and us meeting him uh, will not come until there is a great rebellion against God or an apostasy and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. Now, this is referring to the final Antichrist. The New King James calls him the son of perdition. There's only one other person called the son of perdition in the Bible, and that's Judas Iscariot. So the Antichrist, in verse 4, will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Interestingly, this version puts the first God, where it says defy everything that people call God, as a little g, and the other two gods as the big g. So if you look in Daniel, some of the descriptions of this future ruler is he doesn't even worship the God of his fathers. So he's not against just Christianity. He's against any God because he has decreed and believed that he himself is God. Okay, so... He's going to go after any God whatsoever, but especially Christ followers and Jewish people. Then in verse five, don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you and you know what is holding him back for he can be revealed only when his time comes. So this final future uh, superpower and ruler is being held back because there's a certain time when he will be released. He then says, for this, for this lawlessness is already at work secretly, 
and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. Okay, so I'm going to read from my notes so I don't mess anything up. The first thing to note is the Lord, the, the second coming of the Lord and our gathering to meet him will not be until one, there's a great rebellion, and two, the man of lawlessness is revealed. So that means, guys, we're not raptured out before the Antichrist is revealed. And that mentality has caused great damage uh, to the church. Okay, so I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to say two things for sure have to happen. The great falling away and the revealing of the Son of Man before his second return and our meeting him in the air. Paul equates those two events into one. Um, he, uh, like all other antichrist rulers, will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God. He'll claim that he is God. Um, he's going to go after any God whatsoever. Now, what's interesting is in verse six, six, what is holding him back? The word restrained refers to an entity, event, or state that is restraining. It's the Greek word oho. It's the exact same word that's used in verse seven referring to the one. So what you see is you see, you know what is holding him back. And then it says, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Um, and so here in the first one, it is a V or an it. It's an event or a state or an entity. But in the second one, it's uh, now a he or a she. So why has it changed? Well, it could be that the only way for him to take uh, power is for someone else to step out of the way. Now, it could also be, you know, um, a group of people, a coalition of people. But the main thing is that there's going to be a change in the geopolitical realm that will make the way for the Antichrist to step into the power as the world ruler. Okay. And, and then, um, uh, if we look at our context in Daniel, we see that the changes of the state of nations open the way for the next ruler. And so what this means is that more than likely what is restraining is actually world events. There are geopolitical events that have to come together, which Daniel talks about a lot, Revelation talks about a lot, that once those things are in place, then whomever or whatever is going to step out of the way for this ruler to come forward. So it's just like with Antiochus Epiphanes. He was challenged by Rome. They drew a circle around him on a beach, and the general said, you've got one choice. You step out of this circle, the might of the Roman Empire is going to destroy you. Or you can leave and go do whatever it is you're going to do, and we'll let you live. And he decided to go ahead and do that. He actually died in battle. I don't know if he died of a wound or if he was hit with an illness, but um, just like Daniel prophesied, he, he did die at the height of his power. So what happened? Antiochus stepped out of the way, and the Roman Empire took over Israel. Uh, now, a lot of people believe that he is, that the rapture is the event and that he is the Holy Spirit. But again, that's impossible, number one, because of the use of the word parousia. 
number two, because the man of lawlessness and the great falling away has to happen first. And number three, Paul equates our meeting him in the air uh, with his second coming. So the earliest that we're going to be caught up is at his second coming. And, uh, and I'll get into this more in depth when we get into Revelation. Okay, um, so where heaven was restrained in dealing with uh, Antiochus, I believe it's going to be a similar scenario. Geopolitical events and heaven will be restrained from stopping the Antichrist for those three and a half years of um, causing some of the greatest um, terror and turmoil on the earth. Uh, than has ever been seen. So he's going to be a, a, culmina a, a culmination, culmination of all the Antichrist hateful and rage-filled rulers of all times and empowered by the dragon. So it's going to be uh, pretty intense. Uh, so our gathering to meet him won't happen until uh, those two events occur. The word time, where it says when his time comes for him to be revealed, is the word kairos. So at, at points of times of time consisting of occasions for particular events or opportune times. The other word for time is chronos, which is just simply a passing of time. This is opportune times. So there's going to be a, a, where everything is perfect for the Antichrist to show up. I believe that the restraining is God restraining until the perfect time in the state of events, the geopolitical atmosphere is um, ripe and perfect. It'll set the stage for the Antichrist. Now, Kairos, Kairos is what uh, Paul instructs us to redeem in Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. He says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming means, quote, to do something with intensity and urgency. And the idea is that we are in a Kairos time in which we need to be intense and urgent in the word uh, that God has given us to do. Building church buildings is not it. Uh, taking nations is a focus of God because we've got to make sure that our nation, the nation we live in, is a sheep nation. So the days are growing more evil and we need to become more urgent and intense. Now, with regards to the Antichrist of former Antiochus, we see that there were Kairos times at work. It appeared that they were, you know, succeeding in heaven. Um, and, you know, then Rome shows up and paves the way. Uh, if you look at Hitler, he would be a modern day example of heaven being restrained. And what's interesting is out of that, the nation of Israel was reborn. So a nation that had not been a nation for 2000 years, all of a sudden, well, uh, over 1900, all of a sudden was a nation once again. Well, no, it'd be, it'd be over 2000 years. Yeah, it'd be over 2000 years. Um, okay. In Isaiah 66, 8, it says, who has ever... Uh, seen anything as strange as this who has ever heard of such a thing has a nation ever been born in a single day has a country ever come forth in a mere moment but by the time jerusalem's birth pains begin her children will be born and that is the scripture and the prophecy of israel becoming a nation again uh let's see um okay so the antichrist will be allotted seven years 3.5 of those will be the great tribulation his work will pave the way for his own demise in the second coming of the Lord. This is a genius of God and that he tells us what is coming and he uses it for his own purposes. So remember this, the fact that he tells us what is coming isn't an indicator that it's his will, 
but he gives us this information in order for us to prepare so we can position ourselves for victory and not become offended when it happens. In Jude 8, in the New King James, it says, These dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. This is a summation of all Antichrist rulers. In the New Living Translation, it says, In the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. That's, the language is similar to what we see here in Daniel. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, The Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. But these people scoff at things they do not understand, like unthinking animals or beasts. They do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. The phrase, who claim authority from their dreams, is very interesting. Hitler was full of wrath. He had dreams of ruling the world. And in fact, before he was even born, there was a painter, which you can look it up. I think I've got it saved on my computer if you can't find it. But there was a painter who painted the God of War. And I've seen this painting. And it's like there's fire and redness and darkness behind this figure that's on a horse galloping away from just desolation and dead bodies and people screaming. What's eerie is he looks exactly like Hitler. So before Hitler was ever born, this painting is made. It's called the God of War. Hitler later saw this painting, saw his likeness, and believed that he was the German God of War. And so that painted, paved the way for him to do the things that he did. So his dreams and his ambitions of being a world leader was his justification for invading other nations and killing millions of people. He was a god in his uh, own mind, and this is the pattern that we see in all Antichrist rulers. So here in Daniel 8, to finish up, we see that the Antichrist had a Kairos time to succeed at everything he, or Antiochus had a Kairos time to succeed at everything he did until Rome arrived. Even the Maccabean rebellion paved the way for the Lord. So when it appears that you're in your darkest time, you must hold on to the fact that the enemy is being played. The very thing he has used to attack you is actually paving the way for your victory. But don't put up with random attacks. Rebuke the enemy in all attacks. But know that some are actually a passage through, quote, the valley of the shadow of God, death that God did not orchestrate, but he will use for your benefit. And that is fulfilling Romans 8.28, that we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And one of the, the things that um, I learned on a teaching today is when you look at the, uh, in Romans, or no, I'm sorry, Hebrews, um, chapter 12, where it talks about the shaking. The shaking is a promise. It's not a warning. It's a promise. The shaking is a good thing because it's going to shake everything that can be shaken and what can't will remain, which is the kingdom of God. So we want to embrace the shaking. We don't want to fear it, but we also need to be smart and we need to be wise in how we interact with geopolitical events and what's going on in our world. So anyway, um, hopefully I didn't offend anybody. Uh, hopefully you'll take, uh, the things that I brought up today and research them and go deeper. Don't take my word for it. Stay the scripture. Um, I don't take any, um, what's the word? I, I don't get acceptance and I don't get that feeling that I'm on the right track or, um, validation by what, if people agree with me in the scriptures. 
um, because, you know, I'm still trying to figure things out. There's things I don't quite understand, but I'm seeking revelation. Um, you need to question what I say, and you need to get in the word um, and find out and search these things on your own. Um, you don't want to trust every man. In fact, the promise that we have is that because we have Holy Spirit, he will teach us all things. We don't need man to teach us. That doesn't mean that teachers aren't important because Ephesians 4.11 says that that's one of the gifts that Christ gave to us. But what it means is you have the Holy Spirit, you have the word, and the responsibility is for you to search the scriptures. Uh, so anyway, hopefully this is helpful. It gets you started in a direction that you can dig deeper. And we'll go into part two of Antiochus uh, activities next week. So have a good night. It is time for me to shut down. I've been up since five something. So I'm going to relax and um, enjoy the little bit of time I'll be awake. All right. See you soon.